Welcome to A Word from the Valley, a weekly podcast produced for you from Zion Lutheran Church in Middletown, Maryland. For more information about our faith community and our weekly worship services, visit us at zionmiddletown.org or find us on Facebook. We hope you have a great week, and God bless. So, whereas in last week's gospel we had the longest conversation that Jesus has with anybody in the entire New Testament canon, this week we see Jesus has very few speaking parts and is really a minor character. The main character in this gospel narrative is the blind man, which is interesting. The main character doesn't have a name. Just like the woman at the well doesn't have her name revealed by John, neither does John reveal this man. It's always just a blind man, which I find a bit odd as a modern reader. Maybe even someone insulting that nobody bothered to ask this man his name. Instead, in the entire story, all they're concerned about is, was he healed on the Sabbath? And who healed him? Nobody really cares to ask this man his name. Not even his parents call him by his, his given name. The only way that we can define him is through his disability. And all the cultural competencies and sensitivity trainings that I've gone through in these 11 years of ministry, we are taught to never do this. We are taught to never look at someone's limitation, but rather focus on their individuality, who they are, rather than what they cannot do. Jesus healed a man who had been born blind, and nobody wants to believe the man. They only want to condemn him as a sinner. Which is another thing I think is, that is worth noting here in the gospel. The reason they all believe this man has been born blind is because of something his parents did. Something his parents sinned. And his, their son is bearing the, the punishment. Unfortunately, this, this theology does have biblical roots. I wish it wasn't there, and frankly, but this, is, uh, this way of thinking is still used today, which I find even more despicable because, frankly, we know better. So in Exodus uh, 34, God says, The Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Most of us like to only focus on the part where it says about if you do not keep God's will, you will suffer and your children will suffer and their children will suffer. But what about the first part of this verse? A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We always forget that part of the gospel, the, of Exodus 34. We forget the part where, where God promises to forgive, is slow to anger, and is abounding in steadfast love. We love, though, to focus on the part about God's vengeance, right? It makes us happy to think that God will punish our enemies, all those who have done us wrong, that God will get you. 
But what happens when you're the one who got? When you are born blind simply because of genetics? As science has shown us, some things like blindness happen for a variety of reasons, but there's no way an indicate, indicative of our parents' behavior or our behavior. The Pharisees' way of thinking, the, the people of Jesus' day way of thinking, really reflects the best wisdom of a time when we did not understand disease, germs, and genetics. Today, saying anything like, God is punishing you for something you did, is not only unkind, it's just plain wrong. Something, sometimes bad things happen to very good people. Sometimes people are born blind and deaf. Sometimes people are born with one arm or one leg. Some people are born with a bad heart. But that doesn't mean that God is punishing them. It just means their body is different. But we all share one thing in common. What Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. You were created. We all were created so that God's works might be revealed through each and every one of us. Through you. Part of me wonders, was it worth being born blind from birth so that God's works might be revealed? I mean, God did create the heavens and the earth from nothing. Couldn't God find a better medium other than this poor guy to have him suffer all these years? You know, I think that's a fair question, and I really don't have a good answer, nor would I try to venture out to try to find one. But what I will say is that we need to do a better job of seeing past someone's disability and seeing them as a child of God, and that we all play a part in God's kingdom in revealing the good news. In Jesus' day, people born blind and deaf or with other disabilities had to rely on someone else to care for them. Because of the commonly held belief that your disability was a result of your sin or your parents' sin, you could not receive any help from the temple, and you would have, to, and you would have been a major burden for your family. Hence why this blind man had to beg for food and money. I think in a way, that is where Jesus really balks at the temple and the religious people who could not care about anything about, who could only care about themselves and not about the people who are suffering all around them. They would rather feed themselves in the mouths of those who are suffering from birth for something they did not do. They'd rather condemn this man than welcome him into their community because it is easier to deal with him as a beggar and a blind man than as a healed man who has his life back. Is a lot like the idiom, better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. It's better to keep this man blind because at least we know what we can expect out of him. That he'll just sit there and beg and dare not challenge us and our authority. The result of the blindness is rejection from the community. The result of the healing should be acceptance back in to the community. Except the community rejects the miracle in favor of the status quo. From the very beginning of this gospel reading, Jesus had set out to define this man's blindness, not as a sin, but about God at work within this man's blindness. Jesus set out to make this about faith and give us all something to believe in, that God wants us to live in communion with one another, that blindness is not a result of sin, but as a result of God using this person to reveal the gospel, the good news to the world. My brothers and sisters, 
The whole time the religious leaders are arguing about whether or not it was right to heal on the Sabbath, whether this man was indeed born blind because of a sin, or whether Jesus had even done the miracle at all. Nobody celebrates with the man who was once blind who can now see. Nobody believed him. They instead drive him out of the synagogue and tell him never to come back. All because they can't understand why God would heal this blind man. Nobody believed him. Yeah, I get that. I really do. Really, nobody wanted to listen to him because he was challenging the status quo. And challenging the status quo is hard and difficult work. Sometimes it is easier to live in the dark because in the darkness we can't see our own sin. We can't, we can't see it. Sometimes it's easier to ignore the truth. And I get that. You know, I'm part of the, the millennial generation who is, who is very much absent from our pews today. And over the years, I have read many a news article, journal article. I have attended all kinds of conferences and synodical meetings where we focus on how to attract more young people. The ELCA has even made it a goal to attract more young people by, I think, like 2030. Beside that, from, beside that being, I think, in some ways, a really strange goal to have, how exactly is the church going to do that? What's going to change? Because I remember a few years ago, I was at a, an ecumenical meeting. Um, the whole group was talking, we were talking about millennials and how we could bring them back to the church. And all these guys sitting around the table, and it was all guys at this meeting, they're throwing out all kinds of ideas left and right. Some of them were okay. Some of them were really good. Some of them were quite offensive to me, a millennial, sitting there listening to them say this. But nobody in that table dared to ask me or this other pastor who was also the same age, what we thought. See, the problem that most churches have is that, they, is that we want new people, but we, we don't want to change the status quo that comes with new people. We are afraid of what they might take away instead of seeing what might happen if we give them a chance. For the first time in the history of the world, there are about seven generations living together here on earth. Before that, before this, at the most, there were maybe three generations, which meant generations, generational divisions, even though they were present, they were not as significant. You know, we have people sitting in these very pews right now who remember the end of World War II, all the way to like my son's generation who do not know a world before Wi-Fi and cell phones. Seven generations sharing the same pews. Seven generations of people with different views, opinions, experiences. You know, sometimes it is easier to just look at those sitting next to us, regardless of the generation, and say, you just don't get it. Because we all do this, no matter the generation that we hail from. We condemn each other like the Pharisees condemned the blind man and push each other aside, calling one another all sorts of names, simply because we'd rather stick to what we know rather than what could be. And I want you to know, I'm not condemning that ecumenical group that I was a part of. They, they were genuinely concerned about the church aging prematurely and truly want to find a way to reach out 
to a largely unchurched population of people. But I think it is worth pointing out that we still push aside and ignore people who challenge us or want to reveal God's news, good news in a different way. Because it's far easier to act like the Pharisees than to change the status quo. But here's the really good news. John writes, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, the blind man out. And when he found him, when Jesus found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Remember, the blind man never saw Jesus. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. Right? He just knows his name. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. At the end of the day, even though the leaders drove the blind man out, Jesus found him on the streets. Even though he had been driven out of the, of the synagogue and the temple, Jesus found him. Even though the first thing he literally saw with his eyes was humanity at its worst, he also got to see humanity at its best. And that is Jesus Christ. Despite the religious leaders condemning him, Jesus sought out this bewildered man and revealed to him that God does love him. That God had always loved him. That even though when... He, even when he thought he was being forsaken by God, even when he thought that he was being punished by God for something he committed or his parents had done, even when he was kicked out for being healed, Jesus takes away the false narrative and replaces it with, with the truth, the good news, that God loves you. May this truth and there to be written on our hearts today. And more importantly, may be acted out in our hands, in our feet, and with our mouths.